Section 28 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 7, Part 2. Oh, my poor, poor husband! The thought cut me to the soul. Even if you receive the news today that your Martha is lying on her deathbed, you cannot turn back to close her eyes. You have something more important on hand, the claims of the Augustenburgs to a throne. Frederick, I cried out loud. He flew to my side. At this moment the clock struck. He had now only a minute or two, but we were cheated out of even this last respite, for another attack seized me, and instead of the words of adieu, I could only utter groans of anguish. Go, Baron, finish this scene, said the physician. For the patient, such excitement is dangerous. One more kiss, and he rushed out. My cries in the doctor's last word, dangerous, gave him his dismissal. In what frame of mind must he have been when he departed? The local newspapers of Old Mutz gave this report next day. Yesterday, the regiment left our town with music playing and banners waving, to gain fresh laurels for themselves in the sea-surrounded brotherland. Cheerful courage filled the ranks. One could see the joy of battle glowing in the men's eyes, and so on, and so on. Frederick had already telegraphed to Anne Mary before his departure that I was in want of her help and she came a few hours later to me. She found me senseless and in great danger. For several weeks I hovered between life and death. My child died the day of its birth. The mental pain, which parting from my beloved husband had caused me, just at the time when I wanted all my strength to master the bodily pain, had rendered me incapable of bearing up against it, and I was near succumbing altogether. The physician was obliged by his plighted word to send my poor husband the sorrowful news that the child was dead and the mother in danger of death. As to the news which came from him, they could not be communicated to me. I knew no one and was delirious day and night. A strange delirium. I brought back with me a feeble reminiscence of it into the period of recovered consciousness, but to reproduce this in reasonable words would be impossible for me. In the abnormal whirl of the fevered brain, conceptions and images form themselves for which there is no expression in language suitable to our normal thoughts. Only so much can I set down, and I have attempted to fix a fantastic sketch in the red volumes, that I confuse the two events, the war and my confinement, together. I fancy that cannon and naked weapons, I distinctly felt the bayonet thrusts, were the instruments of delivery, and that I was lying there the prize of contention between two armies rushing on each other. That my husband had marched out I knew, but I saw him still in the form of the dead Arnaud, while by my side, Frederick dressed as a sick nurse, was stroking the silver stork. Every moment I was awaiting the bursting shell which was to shatter us all three, Arnaud, Frederick, and me, to pieces, in order that the child could come into the world, who was destined to rule over Denstein, Schlesmark, and Holwig. 
and all this gave me such unspeakable pain, and was so unnecessary. There must, however, be someone somewhere who could change it and remove it all, who could lift off this mountain from my heart, and that of all humanity, by some word of power. And I was devoured with a longing to cast myself at this somebody's feet, and pray to him. Help us, for the sake of mercy and justice, help us. Lay down your arms. Down. With this cry on my lips, I woke one day to consciousness. My father and Aunt Mary were standing at the foot of the bed, and the former said to me to hush me. Yes, yes, child, be quiet. All arms down. The recovery of the sense of personality, after a long suspension of the intellect, is certainly a strange thing. First the joyful, astonished discovery that one is alive, and then the anxious questioning with oneself who one really is. But the sudden answer to that question, which burst in with full light upon me, changed the just-awakened pleasure of existence into violent pain. I was the sick Martha Tilling, whose newborn child was dead, and whose husband was gone to battle. How long ago? That I knew not. Is he alive? Have you letters there? Messages? were my first questions. Yes, there was quite a little heap of letters and telegrams piled up, which had come during my illness. Most of them were merely inquiries about my condition, requests for daily, and as far as possible, hourly information. This, of course, was so long as the writer was at places where the telegraph could reach him. I was not permitted to read Frederick's letters at once. They thought it would excite me too much and disturb me, and now that I was hardly awake out of my delirium, I must, before all things, have repose. They could tell me as much as this. Frederick was unhurt up to the present time. He had already been through several successful engagements. The war must now soon be over. The enemy maintained themselves at Alsen only, and if this position once were taken, our troops would return, crowned with glory. This was what my father said for my comfort, and Aunt Mary gave me the history of my illness. Several weeks had now passed since her arrival, which was the very day on which Frederick departed, and my child was born and died. Of that I had preserved a recollection, but what passed in the interval, my father's arrival, the news that had come from Frederick, the course of my illness, of all that I knew nothing. Now I heard for the first time, that my condition had become so much worse that the medical man had quite given me up, and my father had been called to see me for the last time. The bad news must certainly have been sent to Frederick, but the better news also, for the doctors had given hope again some days ago, must by this time have reached him. If he himself is still alive, I struck in with a deep sigh. Do not commit a sin, Martha, my aunt admonished me. The good God and his saints would not have preserved you, in answer to our prayers, in order afterwards to send such a visitation upon you. Your husband also will be preserved to you, for whom I, you may believe me when I say so, have prayed as fervently as for you. I have even sent him a scapulary. Oh, yes, do not shrug your shoulders. You have no trust in such things but they can do no harm anyhow, can they? And how many proofs there are of their good effect? 
You, yourself, are again another proof what effect the intervention of the saints has. For you were, believe me, on the edge of the grave, when I addressed myself to your patron and protectress, St. Martha. And I interrupted my father, who was very clerical indeed in his politics, but in the practical way did not at all sympathize with his sister. I wrote to Vienna for Dr. Braun, and he saved your life. Next day, on my urgent prayer, I was permitted to read through all the messages that had come from Frederick. Mostly there were only questions in a single line, or news equally laconic. An engagement yesterday. I am unhurt. We march again today. Send messages to... A longer letter bore this direction on the envelope. To be delivered only if all danger is over. This I read last. My all. Will you ever read this? The last news which reached me from your physician ran. Patient in high fever. Condition grave. Grave? He used the expression, perhaps out of consideration, so as not to say, hopeless. If you have this put into your hands, you will know by that that you have escaped the danger. But you may think, in addition, what my feelings were, as, on the eve of a battle, I pictured to myself that my adored wife was lying on her deathbed, that she was calling for me, stretching out her arms for me. We did not even say any regular adieu to each other, and our child, about whom I had had such joy, dead. And tomorrow, I myself, suppose a bullet find me. If I knew beforehand that you were no more, the mortal shot would be the dearest thing to me. But if you are preserved, no, then I do not wish to know anything more of death. The joy of dying, that unnatural feeling which the field preachers are always pressing on us, is one no happy man can know. And, if you are alive, and I reach home, I have still untold treasures of bliss to gather. Oh, the joy of living with which we too will enjoy the future, if any such is to be our lot. Today we met the enemy for the first time. Up to that, our way had been through conquered territory, from which the Danes had retreated. Smoking ruins of villages, ravaged cornfields, weapons and knapsacks lying about, spots where the land was plowed up by the shells, bloodstains, bodies of horses, trenches filled with the slain. Such are the features of the scenes through which we have been moving in the rear of the victors, in order, if possible, to add more victories to the account, i.e., to burn more villages, and so forth. And that we have done today. We have carried the position. Behind us lies a village in flames, the inhabitants had the good luck to have quitted it beforehand. But in the stable a horse had been forgotten. I heard the beast in despair, stamping and shrieking. Do you know what I did? It will procure me no decoration, most certainly. For, instead of bringing down a Dane or two, I rushed to the stable to set the poor horse free. Impossible. The manger had already caught fire, then the straw under his hoofs, then his mane so I put two revolver bullets through his head. He fell down dead, and was saved from the pain of being burned to death. Then, back into the fight, the deathly smell of the powder, the wild alarm of the whistling bullets, falling buildings, savage war cries. Most of those around me, friends and foes, 
were, it is true, seized by the delirium of battle, but I remained in blessed sobriety. I could not get myself up to hate the Danes. They are brave men, and what did they do but their duty in attacking us? My thoughts were with you, Martha. I saw you laid out on your bier, and what I wished for myself was that the bullet might strike me. But at intervals, nevertheless, a ray of longing and of hope would shine again. What if she is alive? What if I should get home again? The butchery lasted more than two hours, and we remained, as I said, in possession of the field. The routed enemy fled. We did not pursue. We had work enough to do on the field. A hundred paces distant from the village stood a large farmhouse, with many empty dwelling-rooms and stables. Here we were to rest for the night, and hither we have brought our wounded. The burial of the dead is to be done tomorrow morning. Some of the living will, of course, be shoveled in with them, for the stiff cramp after a severe wound is a common phenomenon. Many who have remained out, whether dead or wounded, or even unwounded, we are obliged to abandon entirely, especially those who are lying under the ruins of the fallen houses. There they may, if dead, moulder slowly where they are. If wounded, bleed slowly to death. If unwounded, die slowly of famine. And we, hurrah, may go on with our jolly, joyous war. The next engagement will probably be a general action. According to all appearance, there will be two entire corps d'armée opposed to each other. The number of the killed and wounded may in that case easily rise to ten thousand, for when the cannons begin their work of vomiting out death, the front ranks on both sides are soon wiped out. It is certainly a wonderful contrivance, but still better would it be if the science of artillery could progress to such a point that any army could fire a shot, which would smash the whole army of the enemy at one blow. Then, perhaps, all waging of war would be entirely given up. Force would then, provided the total power of the two combatants were equally great, no longer be looked to for the solution of questions of right. Why am I writing all this to you? Why do I not break out, as a warrior should, into exalted hymns of triumph over our warlike work? Why? Because I thirst after truth, and after its expression without any reserve. Because at all times I hate lying phrases. But at this moment, when I am so near death myself, and am speaking to you who, perhaps, are yourself lying in the death agony, it presses on me doubly to speak what is in my heart. Even though a thousand others should think differently, or should hold themselves bound at least to speak differently, I will, nay, I must say it once more before I fall a sacrifice to war. I hate war. If only every man who feels the same would dare to proclaim it aloud, what a threatening protest would be shouted out to heaven. All the hurrahs which are now resounding, and all the cannon thunder that accompanies them, would then be drowned by the battle cry of humanity panting after humanity by the victorious cry denouncing war on war. Half past three in the morning. I wrote the above last night. Then I lay down on a sack of straw and slept for an hour or two. We shall break up in half an hour, and then I shall be able to give this to the field post. All is stirring now and getting ready for the march. Poor fellows! 
They have got little rest since the bloody work accomplished yesterday, little refreshment for that which is to be accomplished today. I began with a turn round our improvised field hospital, which is to remain here. There, I saw among the wounded and dying, a pair for whom I would gladly have done the same as for the horse in the fire, put a bullet as a coup de gras through their heads. One was a man who had had his whole lower jaw shot away, and the other... But enough. I cannot help him. Nothing can but death. Unfortunately, he is often so slow. If a man calls in despair for him, he stands deaf before him. On the other hand, he is far too busy in snatching those away who with all their heart are hoping to recover, and calling on him beseechingly. Oh, spare me, for I have a beloved wife pining for me at home. My horse is saddled, so now I must close these lines. Farewell, Martha, if you are still here. End of section 28. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.